I had the pleasure of visiting your church and attending worship several years ago when my friend Lisa Bovie Kemper was serving there. I was in discernment at that time about my own path to ministry, and I actually had the pleasure of singing in that beautiful worship space of yours. So as I record these words for you, I am picturing that beautiful space and remembering the warm welcome I received there. What brings me here to you today is my friendship with your minister, Reverend Alice King, with whom I attended seminary in Chicago. I know that you all have had quite a bit of cold, snowy weather this winter, uncharacteristically cold weather for you. But let me tell you, there is nothing like a January in Chicago when that cold wind blows off the lake and finds the gap between your collar and your scarf on the back of your neck and turns your fingers numb even inside the warmest gloves. Alice and I weathered those cold days together, and I count her among my dearest friends and my most trusted colleagues, and so it is truly an honor to be here with you, leading worship with the congregation that my dear friend serves. Now, as I mentioned, I attended seminary in Chicago, Meadville Lombard Theological School in Chicago, even though there was a perfectly good seminary just 30 miles from my home in Massachusetts, several fine schools, actually. But I wanted to attend a Unitarian Universalist seminary. I didn't know exactly why, but having grown up in a different religious tradition, it felt important to me to expose myself as much as I could to Unitarian Universalist teachings and history and philosophy. Now, one of the most powerful experiences I had at my time at Meadville Lombard Theological happened in my first weekend there. We newly entering students got on a bus and traveled to a Chicago neighborhood known as Little Village. Like so many communities in America, it had suffered from urban blight. A factory that had once provided good paying jobs had closed, crime increased, immigrants moved in because it was affordable, and because the residents there were largely immigrants, their interests and concerns and suffering were often overlooked by elected officials. But something started happening in Little Village, something good. The people began to organize and they took legal action against the owners of the factory that had closed, working to get them to clean up the mess they had left behind. Hope began to take hold and to grow. People started taking care of their properties and yards, sweeping the sidewalks in front of their homes, planting flowers. And what had once been an ugly, neglected corner of an old industrial city became a flourishing community. A community. Now, I was staying with some friends there in Chicago, and they invited a neighbor to join us for dinner. And at dinner that night, I excitedly told the story of what I had experienced in Little Village. And the neighbor asked, what does that have to do with ministry? What does that have to do with ministry? Walking around in the hot sun, talking to community organizers. She was expecting this neighbor, I guess, that I would recite passages from the Bible or talk about how to pray in public, how to write a sermon. 
I was taken aback at the question. I thought it was brilliant that before we learned how to pray or how to preach or how to read the Bible, we learned about the why. Why be a minister? Why have a church or a faith community of any kind? It's got to be about more than finding like-minded individuals or reading pretty words or even listening to soul-stirring music. Those are the tools. Those are the paints that we use, but they're not the painting. The picture we are painting, you and I, and I would hope all people of faith, is of the beloved community, a space where all can partake of the gifts of creation. As long as there is suffering in the world, we are meant to try and heal it. As long as there is injustice in the world, we are called to do all that we can to right those wrongs. It's right there in your mission statement, kindling the flame of love and justice to nurture and heal ourselves, each other, and our world kindling the flame of love and justice, making love and justice manifest in the world, doing your part. You have a purpose, a purpose beyond caring for yourselves and each other, though that is certainly important, that love and care that you offer one another. But it includes reaching out beyond these walls, speaking out against injustice, feeding the hungry, helping to shelter the unhoused, rallying against gun violence, taking sides. Yes, siding with love, kindling the flame to nurture and heal, sacred work to help heal our aching world. And so, of course, it stands to reason to be able to serve you, to serve a Unitarian Universalist congregation. A minister needs to know something about the suffering in the larger world and its causes and its effects and to understand something about what might help ease that suffering. I'm not sure that I was quite so eloquent that evening in response to my friend's neighbor, but I've had some time to think about it since that dinner table conversation, and I am grateful for the question. When I am uncertain about what action to take, if any, I ask myself that question, what does this have to do with ministry? How does this serve our collective mission to kindle the flame of love and justice? I remember one of the first times I attended a Unitarian Universalist service. I arrived early, as most newcomers do. And while I was waiting for the service to begin, I started to look through the hymnal, wondering if I would find any hymns that were familiar to me, and wondering if and half expecting that there would be something in that hymnal that would signal to me that I didn't belong there. And then, There they were, in that hymnal, before the first hymn, right there in black and white, the seven principles. I read them quickly at first and then more slowly. Oh my goodness, I agreed with all of them. They had somehow put into words the things that were most important to me, the inherent worth and dignity of all, 
justice, equity, and compassion, encouragement of spiritual growth, a free and responsible search for meaning, a commitment to democratic principles, a goal of world community, and respect for the interdependent web of all existence. Brilliant. Perfect, I thought, in the flush of new love for this newfound faith. Y'all can remember maybe how you felt the first time if you've come out of another tradition the first time that you attended a Unitarian Universalist service. And I still love talking with people who have just discovered the seven principles for the first time. It's like seeing New York City, the New York City skyline for the first time from a distance. Magical. Now, in the intervening years since that first time, and as I grew older and perhaps a bit more curmudgeonly, I have sometimes wished that the seven principles were a bit more poetic in how they are presented. But my goodness, can you imagine being part of the committee that wrote and rewrote and rewrote our seven principles? I would not presume to second guess them except for when I do second-guess them, something we all do, right? We love to edit other people's writing. Now, to my mind, in that spirit, you really only need the first and the seventh principles, right? Inherent worth and dignity and the interconnected web. All the others really derive from those, right? So if you truly believe in the inherent worth and dignity of all people, then of course you would exercise compassion and would encourage spiritual growth and would follow democratic principles. And if you truly understand that we are all interconnected, you would work for a world community with peace and liberty and justice for all. So really, we just need two principles, number one and number seven, and the ones that are now numbers two through five could be part of like a bulleted list under the first. And what was formerly the sixth principle could be under the now what was now the second, formerly the seventh principle. Much clearer, right? But now there's talk of adding an eighth principle. And it won't surprise you that my first response to hearing about that was, no, there are already too many. And besides, seven is a much better number than eight. Really compelling argument there, right? Now you've heard, I'm sure, many times the expression that revelation is not sealed. That we Unitarian Universalists believe that wisdom continues to emerge and can and should be considered. I think that when we say revelation is not sealed, what we really mean is revelation used to not be sealed, but now it is. Now that I have figured everything out, I want it to stay just the way it is. Seven principles are just fine, even though I wish they were a little less wordy, a little more poetic, and even though we probably could express the same thing with just two principles. But could we? Sometimes when we are asked what Unitarian Universalists believe, we point to the seven principles. But they're not really a statement of belief like some faiths have. For example, a belief in a certain kind of deity or beliefs about what happens after death, the role of sin. 
That's not what the seven principles are. They are part of a covenant. They are aspirational. We, the member congregations of the Unitarian Universalist Association of Congregations, covenant to affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person, etc. We pledge to make these values manifest, not just in word, but also in deed, in how we behave in our congregations and in the larger world. Our principles call us to action, to affirm and promote, not just believe in them, but live them, share them, demonstrate them, walking the talk. Now, what does all this social justice stuff, all this awareness of exposing ourselves to the world's suffering have to do with ministry? And we all have a ministry in this aching world of ours. Acknowledging the world's suffering and doing what we can to ease it has everything to do with ministry, with church. We must walk the talk. Now, do we live these values perfectly? here at home or out in the world? No, of course not. Sometimes we fall short, miss the mark, cause harm even. This covenant is something that we can call ourselves and each other back to, to begin again in love. So do we really need an eighth principle? This is the proposed text. It will come up for a vote at a future General Assembly, and it has already been adopted by over a hundred of our Unitarian Universalist congregations. Here's the text. The first part is familiar. We, the member congregations of the Universalist Association, covenant to affirm and promote, journeying towards spiritual wholeness by working to build a diverse, multicultural beloved community by our actions that accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and our institutions. That's it. It calls us to work to dismantle racism and other oppressions. But do we really need a special principle about racism? I mean, if we believe in the inherent worth and dignity of everyone, and the interdependent web and the exercise of democratic process, doesn't anti-racism fall under that already? Hmm. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those words were written at the founding of this nation, and yet we have had to add more explicit language to secure the rights of women, of people of color, of immigrants. In 2020, our Unitarian Universalist Association released a report called Widening the Circle of Concern, published by the Commission on Institutional Change. The commission on institutional change was created in response to the experiences of many Unitarian Universalists who are part of marginalized communities, particularly people of color. Disappointing, harmful, heartbreaking experiences. Widening the circle of concern in a sermon called The Missing Remnant, Reverend Dr. Sophia Betancourt reminds us 
that the fabric of our culture is missing essential pieces, essential experiences, cultures, identities, and she offers that together we can create a collective wholeness. We Unitarian Universalists, as products of American culture, have been so focused on individual rights. What we need now is a focus on collective liberation. In the chapter in that report on living our values in the world, the commission writes, our internal work as people of faith is to become more inclusive, equitable, and diverse, while our external work is to be accountable to those most affected by injustice. Our internal work is to be more inclusive. Our external work is to be more accountable. Our seven principles call us to do that internal work, but the eighth principle calls for accountability. And I would add it is you use of color who wrote the text of this proposed principle and are calling on all congregations and our association to add this to our covenant. And frankly, that alone is enough for me to want to support this. My beloveds are asking me, asking all Unitarian Universalists to take this action, to make this commitment. What we do matters. And who we say we are also matters. All this struggle about the words Black Lives Matter, for example, in what way do those three words leave anyone else out? We Unitarian Universalists are people of the words, and I do count myself among them, among us in that way, but as I have said many times before, I love people and honor relationship even more than I love and honor words and language. So at every opportunity, I will vote to affirm this eighth principle, and I will resist the urge to wordsmith it. I intend to give full-throated and full-hearted support to this request from my UU siblings of color, not just to say the words, but to do the work in every way that I can to dismantle racism and other forms of oppression from within myself and from the institutions in which I serve, and that includes Unitarian Universalism, to be sure. And that work has everything to do with ministry, mine, yours, ours. We all live in the United States of America, and we have all inherited 400 years of history that includes the enslavement of other humans, the opposite of affirming inherent, inherent worth and dignity. We all have work to do because we all own that history. Those of us who descended from enslaved people carry that trauma in our DNA. Those of us who are white have benefited from white supremacy culture that centers the experience of white people. Consider two of the recent murder trials that have been in the news, the trial of Ahmed Arbery's accused killers. That trial almost didn't even happen. But for social media, there might not even have been charges filed. And in Wisconsin, a man showed up at a protest armed with an AR-15, killed two people and wounded a third, and was portrayed as a frightened but well-meaning child. And he was acquitted. 
And in some circles, he's being held up as a hero. How can this be? White supremacy and racism kill. And they are going to keep on killing and harming and denying justice to people of color in this country until we all, black and white together, work to end the toxic effects. And this, my friends, has everything to do with ministry, with church, with building the beloved community. I hope that all of our Unitarian Universalist congregations will begin considering the Eighth Principle if they haven't already done so, to learn more about its origins, to read and see what we might learn from the Widening Circle of Concern Report, Widening the Circle of Com Concern Report. We should all take a look at that. There is more sacred work to do, to create a more perfect union, to build the beloved community. Let us continue to live our values within these walls and beyond. Let us commit to kindle that flame of love and justice, to nurture and heal ourselves, each other, and our world. May it be so.